Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Well, good morning, church. How's everybody doing this morning? All right. Well, we want to welcome all of our guests this morning. Also, all those who are joining us on live stream or listening to this uh, in a podcast later, uh, we want to welcome you. If you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 18. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Uh, Greg will make sure you get one. Luke chapter 18, we are jumping back into our Follow Me series, which is uh, the series of the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. We've been away for a while, and we're coming back this morning, Luke chapter 18. And just to bring you up to speed on where we are, we're, we're like three years into this journey of, like Jesus is already, you know, by the, by the time we'll finish this, he's already been buried in heaven, you know, risen again in, in heaven for years by the time we'll get done with this. But it's an awesome study. Uh, as we look at all four gospel ca- accounts and we follow how Jesus walked the earth this, as close as we can. Uh, today we find ourselves in Luke 18, but uh, where we left off last time, we were in Luke chapter 17, it just so happens, and uh, what, what Jesus was saying to his disciples was that the kingdom has now come and is coming. And what he was telling his disciples is that the, the kingdom of God is completely related to Jesus Christ. Really, when he is present, the kingdom of God is present. You can't have a kingdom unless there's a king. And so Jesus Christ is the king of the kingdom. And so when he is present, the kingdom is present. He says it's coming because when Jesus comes back, guess what? He's bringing his kingdom back. And so what we do as Christians is we preach Jesus Christ because he is the king of the kingdom. He tells us to go out and preach the kingdom of God, but what that means for us is we tell people about Jesus, because guess what? You can't enter the kingdom without the king. You can't, you can't go through the gates of heaven without entering through Jesus Christ. He is the door for us. And so he was telling his disciples, don't forget this crucial thing, that people have to come into relationship with me in order to come into the kingdom of God. And so oftentimes we preach about heaven, we tell people that, you know, you, don't, you want to go to heaven, right? Well, 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 hey, you know, Jesus is the way. And we can almost diminish the fact that Jesus Christ is, we're called to crown him king of our life, to lay our lives down before him, to give up our lives that we might be found in him, that we might be clothed in him. And so when we preach the gospel to people, we want to make sure that we preach Jesus Christ and him crucified because without him, you will not get into heaven. He is the only way. We know this. So we want to be a church that is constantly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and what that means for us as we bring what we can to him, and that is our sin, and he cleanses us and forgives us. So he was telling his disciples, hey, the kingdom is here, and it's coming. Now, his ministry at this point in time He's about just a couple months away from the cross. And what Jesus is doing is he's kind of turned away from public ministry. He's not really out there teaching the Beatitudes and all this kind of stuff. What he's focused on is discipling his, his, his disciples. He's pouring into them because he knows at this point, in, at this stage in the game, they're in big trouble if he leaves right now because they're not ready. You know, you ever feel like that? Like, man, if, if God doesn't do more in me, I'm not going to be prepared for what he's, you know. You don't, don't leave now, Lord. I need more, you know. And that's where he's at with his disciples. He said, man, I got to pour into these guys the last few months of my life. They need it. So he's focused on them. 
and he's teaching them. It just so happens that when Jesus begins to teach his disciples, crowds form. And when they form, Jesus teaches because Jesus loves people. But his primary focus of his ministry right now is his disciples. And he is trying to prepare them to pass the torch of the gospel to them that they might be able to go and carry the gospel into their Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, into the ends of the earth. That's what they're called to do. That's what we're called to do. So that's where we uh, last left off. Now we come to Luke chapter 18. Stand with me if you would. We're going to just read the first verse of Luke chapter 18 as we get started this morning. Here's what the word of the Lord says. Luke chapter 18, verse 1. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, we humbly come and we ask, God, that you would shape and change and form and fashion us this morning into the image of Jesus. We know that we can come to a subject like prayer and we can think like, oh, we know all about it. And yet, your disciples were nearly three years in and you're still teaching them about prayer. Lord, we need to hear from you this morning. We want to hear from you. We ask that you would speak to our hearts. We know you have something specific for every one of us this morning. So open our ears, God, to your spirit. Help us to hear what it is that you want to say to us. We pray in Jesus' name. You can be seated. We do have a little bit of a heat problem in here. I'm not sure this is not working, so we'll... We'll, we'll deal with it, but you guys are all right with that, right? We'll sweat it out for Jesus, right? Yeah. Well, hey, one day, Joe, Bob, and Dave were hiking in a wilderness area, and they came upon a large, raging, violent river. Uh, they needed to get across to the other side, uh, but they had no idea how to do so. So Joe prayed to God, and he said, please, God, give me the strength to cross this river. And poof, God gave him big arms and strong legs. And he swam across the river. It took him nearly about two hours to get across. He nearly drowned twice doing it, but he got across. Uh, so Bob comes along and he says, well, if Joe can do it, I'm going to do it too. So he prays, God, please help me cross this river. Give me the strength and the tools to cross this river. And poof, God gave him a rowboat. And so, uh, so Dave was able to get in the rowboat and cross the river, nearly capsizing a couple times, but he got across. Now, Dave on the, or Bob on the other hand, he saw how it worked out for these two fellas. And so he came to God and he prayed, please God, give me the strength and the tools and the intelligence to cross this river. Poof, God turned him into a woman. She looked at the map, walked, walked upstream a couple hundred yards and went across the bridge and she got on the other side. So there you have it. Listen, I know you're, I, I had to give some, some uh, uh, accolades to women because they're going to get dissed here in a minute. So I had to start that way because I think that's important to not lose the listeners in the first five minutes, right? So here, <laughs> so here, how we pray matters, doesn't it? The things we say, what we ask for truly matters. And that's what Luke wants to show us in, in chapter 18 this morning. I'm calling this message, How Not to Pray. How Not to Pray because just as we need to be taught how to pray, we also need to be taught how not to pray. Hopefully this will help us become more effective in our prayer life. Uh, let me illustrate for you. 
Uh, the other day I was in the gym with my kids and we were playing pickleball. Anybody know what that is? It's kind of like uh, wiffle ball and tennis combined. And you're on a small court and uh, you've got paddles and you've you got this wiffle ball and you can just crank on that ball and you know how wiffle balls go. They can only go so fast. It's a blast. But, but we were playing and my kids, you know, they, were, they, were, they have this hand-eye coordination development going on. You know what I mean? So that means they don't hit the ball in code for parent, right? They're not able to hit the ball, but, but it's hand-eye coordination training. So what we were doing was I was saying, kids, let me, let me show you how to hit the ball. And, 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 and saying like, hey, let me show you how to hit the ball, I had to show them how not to hit the ball, right? I had to say, listen, don't do it like this. If you turn your head away from the ball, you will miss the ball completely. You do it like this. You watch the ball and hit the paddle, but don't do it like that. And of course, they said to me, dad, we know how to hit the ball. And I said, obviously you don't because you're not hitting the ball. So can I train you in that? And so, so many times we come to the Lord that way, right? With that kind of attitude. Oh, don't tell me about prayer, God. I know how to pray. I can do it. You know, and Jesus would say to you this morning, obviously not. You need some help in your prayer life. How many of you would agree that you would say, hey, I, I need some help in my prayer life? I do. I want to know how Jesus wants me to pray and how he doesn't want me to pray. It's important. And so that's what we're going to find this morning. Uh, you know, as we, my aim this morning is to get out of the way and allow Jesus to guide us into a more effective prayer life by showing us how not to pray. So in these 14 verses that we come to this morning, uh, Jesus is going to give us a couple parables. A parable is an earthly story that Jesus is laying aside a, a heavenly truth. He's trying to help us come to some understanding of some heavenly things, some principle that he's trying to bring down to earth. And so he uses parables. Parables were often used in this culture that Jesus was teaching. And they, they used them all the time they, it, to teach spiritual truths so that the foreigner could understand. Now, Jesus used them uh, as an effective way to demonstrate the genuineness of heart. So, so Jesus said it like this, like he was asked by his disciples, why do you teach in parables? And here's what he said in Matthew chapter 13, verse 10 through 13. He said, then the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, to you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, uh, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. That's why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Jesus was speaking in parables as he walked on the face of the earth to help people discern their hearts. What he was doing was concealing the truth to those who don't want to really know, and he was revealing the truth at the very same time to those who did. When he taught in parables, the whole point of it was to stimulate questions in people's minds that they might come and ask for more description. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you care about what he's teaching. You just don't say, oh, well, I don't understand that. I'm going to move on. No, because you're trying to follow him. And so you want to follow him, and so you're going to seek him out, and you're going to ask him questions. Jesus, I don't understand why you're doing this, just like his, his disciples did in, this, in Matthew 13. They came to him and said, why do you teach in parables? I don't understand it. Just teach it plainly. 
just tell us plainly what the deal is. Why do you have to use an earthly story for a heavenly principle? You know, what's the whole point of it? And he said, because to you it's been given. You're seeking out. You want to know. But there's so many people that don't want to know, and so it's concealed to them. The point of it is to bring understanding, but at the same token, you know, the way we understand this is that God will not force a person to believe. And do you know that Jesus was such an effective teacher that he could have forced people to believe? Because he's God. He could do that. But because God won't overstep the will of man, he gives us a choice in the matter. You decide whether you want to seek me or not. And that's why he did what he did. Well, this morning, as we come to Luke 18, there are two parables that he wants to cast alongside some heavenly truth that he's trying to reveal to us. And it relates to prayer. He's relating to prayer. Now, he tells, uh, it, it says here in verse 1, and he told them a parable. Now, who's the them? Who, who's he talking to? It's important that we understand that. We have to go backwards in order to understand who Jesus is talking to. If you look in Luke 17, you'll find that Jesus is speaking, speaking both to his disciples and to Pharisees. They're both present there at that time. You know, and so as we work through the parable, you'll see that in the second parable, Jesus speaks to the Pharisees. That must be present there. But he starts out speaking uh, to his disciples. And he, and he is going to tell them, listen, don't give up. Keep on praying. That's the first point if you're taking notes. Don't give up on your prayer. Keep on praying. He said this in verse 1, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always to pray and not lose heart. Now, I know you guys really dive in deep to the theology of John Bon Jovi, but follow me on this. Listen, John Bon Jovi said it well when he said, we're living on a prayer. We're living on a prayer. You see, Tommy and Gina are real life. That's a real life story, isn't it? Tommy used to work on the docks, but he got laid off. Gina works the diner all day. She's sweating it out for her man to bring home the bacon, you know. And the reality is life is hard for them. Anybody relate to that? Life is difficult. And yet the only thing they have going for them is prayer. Living on a prayer. It is true that we are to live on a prayer. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't lose heart in your prayer life. Because life can get difficult. It does get difficult. It gets hard. There are things you're praying for that maybe you stopped praying for. Because you thought, I guess God, God doesn't care, or his answer is no, or, you know, I'm just burned out, I'm wore out, I've lost heart. So you stopped praying. Jesus wants to tell us today that there are things that we will pray for that are going to take persistence, that we're going to have to keep praying about. We're going to have to deliver them to the throne room of grace over and over again, asking God to do a work, not because God needs to hear you, because God is going to demonstrate your faith in that prayer. Do you really believe that I will and that I can and that I'm able to do these things? Or will you falter out? You see, isn't salvation that way? He who endures to the end shall be saved. It's about faith, isn't it? It's about a continual walk of faith. Believing in God, not turning away from Him. Yes, we go astray here and there, but God brings us back on the path. Your prayer life is no different. You're going to pray over and over for things and God's going to say maybe no, maybe not yet, maybe not now, 
you know, but you have to be persistent in your prayer life. Prayer is hard work. That's why we don't pray much. Because it is hard work. In fact, Paul said that there was a dude named Epaphras in Colossians chapter 4, verse 12, that was struggling in prayer for those in Colossae. That he was, that he was praying for them. He was struggling for them in prayer. In Romans chapter 15, 30, Paul said that we ought to strive in prayer. You see, there is something about prayer that it's, it's like digging a trench, man. It's a, there's a little bit of work involved in it. We got to keep going. We can't lose heart in doing it. That's why Jesus said don't lose heart because the possibility for us to, to lose heart exists. You guys know the feeling. You begin to pray about maybe the will of God in your life or, or some distinct plan that he has for you. Maybe you're praying for an unsafe family member. Uh, you know, and, and after like three prayers, you're just wore out, man. You're just like, oh. I just, I don't understand it. Why, why aren't you answering me, you know? And you're just wore out, you know, you've been praying for at least 10 minutes. And, the, and you're just like, why haven't I heard from you? Where are you? Why aren't you doing this thing, you know? And, and, and the Lord would tell you that there are things that he is he's going to work out, you know, but the, the ultimate thing is when you pray, just because you don't see immediate evidence of his answering of your prayer, don't assume he's not. Because oftentimes we begin to pray, Lord, I want to see my son, my daughter come to Christ. Will you please, Lord, put somebody in their path? And then immediately he starts orchestrating this. Like we can't see that. In the spiritual realm, God is at work. He's sending angels. He's doing things to orchestrate that. Maybe for a period of time, 20 years later, that they might come to Christ. And after 10 minutes, we're like, well, I guess he doesn't care. The reality is, is he's at work, even when you don't see it. He's at work. He hears you, and he's, and he's at work doing things to, 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 to answer your prayer. Don't get discouraged. Don't become hopeless. Don't lose heart because you're not seeing anything happen. We live in, an, in a world of instant gratification, man. We want, at the click of a button, you can have nearly anything you want. Almost anything. You can have a click of a button and it'll arrive at your door. You know, three days later, you can watch things that probably you shouldn't be watching at the click of a button. You can do all kinds of stuff at a click of a button. That's why, as a kid, I loved the Jetsons. Because, you know, I thought, dude, how awesome is this, man? You press a button, you get what you want. I mean, how cool is that? God's not like that. He's not a, a machine. He's not a button that we press and instantaneously we get what we want. He's not the genie in the bottle that we can come to and we get three wishes and we can say, I want this to happen. Or there you have it. You know, there it is. He doesn't work that way. Because what God is doing is cultivating faith in your heart as you're praying to him. You realize prayer isn't for God, right? Like you realize he doesn't need to know what you're thinking. He knows. It's like, oh my gosh, what are they thinking? What do they think of me? He's not in there having some kind of dilemma about who he is and all this kind of stuff. He knows who he is. He knows who you are. He knows every thought about you. He knows every prayer that you pray. He sees every tear that you cry. He knows everything about you. And yet we pray because it stimulates faith in us to say, God, I, I believe you. You know, when Jacob was there wrestling with God. And he said, I will not let you go 
until you bless me. That is our prayer life. That's what it's supposed to look like. I'm not going to let go. I'm going to persistently come to you, Lord. I'm going to cling to your leg. Now listen, sometimes you get hurt doing that. God touched his hip and gave him a limp. Why? Because God was tired of it? Oh, no, because God wanted to remind him that, hey, your persistence will pay off. And I'm going to give you a lifelong limp to remind you of that. Maybe you have one now. I don't know. But, it, you know, the reality is that God is trying to cultivate faith in us. And that's why Jesus ends this parable that way. And he talks about when the Son of Man will come, will he find faith on the earth? Because that's what it's about. It's about faith. God isn't going to instantaneously do the things that we want him to do, but yet he is orchestrating things in the background that we cannot see. And yet our dilemma is, you know, what Jesus' principle to us is, don't lose heart in your prayer. Don't lose heart in it. Keep coming. Because we can lose heart in it. We can begin to doubt God. Listen, the enemy would have you to think that, that um, everything that God claims he is, he isn't. The enemy would, would have you think that everything that God says he can do, he can't. The enemy would have you think that, that God's not hearing you because of who you are. That you've just done too many wrong things this week, and if you would just clean your life up a little bit more, then God would hear your prayer, that he would answer you. And many of you live your lives like that, and you... And you you, 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 you come to the Lord when you feel clean. And you're like, oh, Lord, I've been great. I can come to you. I can pray, I can pray and I know you're going to hear me. And yet when you, when, you, when, you, when you fail, you're hesitant to come to him. And yet that's when we need to come to him the most. Let me tell you something. There's a principle that you should always live by in your life, and, it, and that's when you are wanting to, when, wanting to hesitate to come to the Lord and stuff. That's when you need to come the most. When you want to hesitate to come into the fellowship of God's people, that's when you need to come the most. Because there are things going on in your heart that are going to carry you so far away if you don't. So you need to come to him. Don't let the enemy rip you off. Don't let your, fl your flesh rip you off. Jesus says don't lose heart. Keep praying. Keep cultivating that faith because it won't only affect your prayer life. It will affect your entire walk with God. So don't lose heart. Keep, uh, uh, keep on praying. Jesus illustrates this through a, uh, the widow and an unrighteous judge here. Look at verse 2. He said in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. Verse 3. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Listen, Jesus, in teaching how not to pray, don't lose heart, that's how not to pray, he will now teach her how to pray. He teaches how to pray. He's going to remind us how to pray. He uses a widow who is an incredibly uh, very similar parallel to who you and I are, if you look at this. From a cultural standpoint, this widow had no business. She had no rights at all, actually. She was a woman, first and foremost. I told you it was coming. Don't let it catch you off guard. Culturally, she was a woman, and so, you know, they looked at her, and, and they said, oh, you're just a woman. We, we don't have to listen to you. Uh, also, she, she was considered a second-class citizen. She had no husband, and so she had no right to come to court. She had no right to hold a job. She had no right uh, to, to own property. She really had no rights at all, so she was stuck. 
Literally. I mean, if you want to talk about being hopeless, be a widow in this culture. That's what it looks like. Who will stand for me? Who will help me get justice in my situation? The only one that she could cling to in that moment was this judge, this unrighteous judge who cared about nobody. And she was banking on his mercy. Now, tell me that doesn't parallel you and I. And the fact that we have no right whatsoever to come to God. We have no right to enter into his throne room of grace. Like we don't have, we have no hope to come into him on our own. And our only hope is the mercy of God. That he would do something that would be, enable us to be forgiven for our sin and that hit some, some sort of righteousness would be able to come upon us that we might be able to approach him because that's the only way you can come to him is in righteousness. And yet, do you know God did that for you? He did that for you. He sent his son, Jesus Christ. He saw your hopeless situation, that there was absolutely no way out for you. And he said, I have to change this situation. Why? Because he's merciful. That's why. He's a merciful God, and he loves you, and it's his affections for you that, that caused him to do what he did in sending his son, Jesus Christ. And now, unlike the widow, when we come to the judge, we show up with an advocate. We have somebody that's for us. We have somebody who stands, you know, when the enemy is there whispering, the, he, he doesn't belong here, Jesus steps in and says, yes, he does. I paid for him. And when we come before the Lord, God sees Jesus Christ. He sees his righteousness. That's why we can come to the Lord. That's why Hebrews 4, 6 tells us that we can come boldly or confidently to the throne of grace, that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You're not coming alone. You're coming with Jesus to the throne room of grace. You have representation. But listen, if you don't come through Christ, you can't come at all. That is the reality. It is narrow. It is one way. But praise God that he provided a way. Amen? Thank you, Lord. Jesus opens up the throne room of grace for us. Okay, this woman is, is crossing all kinds of cultural barriers to come to this uh, judge in, in the way that she is, and she will not relent. She's not given up. She has a need, and, and you know the only way that she can get her need met is to, 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 to bank on the mercies of this man. And so she's relentless at it. Now, in ancient courts back in this day, uh, they're, they're a little different than what we're used to. You don't run up to the courthouse and, you know, sit with a, be before a judge with a gavel. You would go to the city gate and there would be a, a judgment seat there and the judge would come and that's where they would have court, right out in the open. Everybody could hear. And, and you know, if you were lived in a smaller city, then what, what happened is there would be traveling judges that would come. Now, you can imagine the docket that would get filled up because uh, we as human beings seem to have no problem creating issues amongst ourselves that need to be tried, right? So what happens is this judge would come and he would have to be bribed in order to be seen because there would be so many people that needed, you know, needed to be seen by him. This woman had nothing to give. She was poor. She had no job. She had no income. She had no, no, uh, no uh, you know, father, mother, whatever that was covering her. She was on her own. She had nothing to bring. And so, yet she still comes. She still comes knowing that, man, 
it's just not even, it's not even, it's not prob probable at all that I'm going to be able to see this guy, but I'm going to continue to come over and over and over again. Jesus is painting the picture of the character of this judge as, a, as not as a respecter of no one. He's not a respecter of God. He's not a respecter of man. He didn't care about anyone else but himself. And yet, because this widow kept coming to him and literally bothering him, uh, the text in, in, the, uh, in the Greek uh, brings, denotes the idea that she was swinging to give him a black eye, that she would keep coming and punch him in the same place over and over again, and he was going to get a black eye if he, didn't, if he didn't answer her. That's what it means. Lest she beat me down. Because she kept coming and coming. She was not going to take no for an answer. So he granted her justice. Now lest you think the moral of the story is for us to just keep coming to God and we're going to wear him down eventually and he will you know, answer our prayer. That's not the moral of the story. The moral of the story again is to keep coming, to keep asking, uh, and the Lord will, will well up faith in you, and, you just, and he'll cultivate uh, an entire life of faith for you through that process, just like he did with Elijah. You know, Elijah didn't start out as a prophet calling down fire from heaven. God did small things in his life. God trained him to come to the place where he would stand before 450 prophets, and he would call down fire from heaven upon a soaking wet, sacrifice that was just a, a moat of water around it, you know, and, and God, he didn't just do that. He didn't just show up and go, I'm a prophet, here we go. It's not the way it works. It was a cultivation of God building his faith up. He also prayed that God wouldn't cause it to rain. He said, God, stop the rain. And you know what? God stopped the rain. He heard him. Now, we come to a place in, uh, I, I think it's First Kings, yeah, First Kings 19, where, where Elijah is going to pray for rain. And here's where the persistence of prayer comes in. Because Elijah, who simply prayed a prayer and God did, it would seem, that's how it would seem in the scriptures, at this point in his prayer life, he goes on Mount, uh, top of Mount Carmel, he begins to pray. The first time he prays and he looks up, he sends his servant to go look towards the sea to see if there's any sign or any, any kind of evidence of rain coming. His servant returns to him after the first prayer and he goes, no, not a sign at all. So what does he do? Man, what's going on? Did I lose my mojo? No, he prays again. He prays the second time. He sends his servant. Nothing. He prays the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth time. Sends his servant. Come back. Nothing, Elijah. Maybe you should stop. Maybe the answer is no. But you know what he does? He prays the seventh time. On the seventh time, Elijah sends his servant again. You can imagine what he's thinking. Why didn't this guy go do it? Why do I got to do it? He's prayed seven times already. God's not hearing him, you know, and yet he goes, okay, whatever you want. And he goes and he says, he comes back and he says, dude, that's what he called Elijah, dude. He said, there's, a, there's like a cloud welling up. It's about the size of a man's hand over the sea. And Elijah said, you better, you better run. It's about ready to pour. You see, the whole point of that is the persistence in prayer. God heard him the first time, but God wanted to do something in his heart. And it wasn't time. And in God's will and his timing all line up, and that all makes a difference in how we pray and you know, what we're praying and all of that. 
but there is that effect of our, our persistent prayer that also uh, plays a role. What if Elijah had stopped praying at number five? What would have happened? Some of you have stopped praying about the things that are dear to your heart and you just, you've just kind of shrugged your shoulders and threw your hands up in the air and you're like, I don't know. I don't know, I, I don't know what else. I, I, don't, I mean, I've done everything I can do. Prayer was my last resort. Is that, that's kind of how we look at it. Prayer was my last resort. Prayer is your only resort. And yet you've stopped praying about these things because you're, you're not seeing God move. And God says, listen, don't lose heart. Have faith. Believe and keep believing. I'm glad that, you know, that, that, how do we know that we're praying with faith? That's, that's a question I wrote down here. How do we know that we're praying with faith? The evidence of your faith is found in your continual coming to the Lord. Not to wear him out, but to express your faith to him. God, I still believe. Even though I haven't heard, I still believe, God. And I'm going to keep coming to you because I believe in you. And I know you have the capacity to do these things. And I'm, I don't pretend to understand your will or your timing or anything, but what I know is that there's a real need that I have and you tell me to come to your throne room and I'm just going to keep coming believing at some point, you're going to do your will in this situation. But until you tell me no, or until I see you work in this situation, I'm going to keep coming. That's what he's telling us. Continue to pray over these things. Now we come to verse 6 where we find the contrast here. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who, carry, uh, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Will he find faith in you when he comes again? He is coming, and he's coming soon. Will he find faith in you? It's not just a question for them then. It's a question for you now. Are you living the life of faith? Are you walking the life of faith? Are you walking the road of faith? You know, the, the, the song Oceans. Lord, use me in mighty ways. And then the Lord says, I want you to step out here and go do that. Not that. I mean, come on, who's going to do that? I ain't doing that. Well, that's where faith comes in. You step out not seeing where, the, where he will meet your foot and where he will help you, you know, rise above the waves in the water. You just believe in him. Jesus wasn't saying here that the father was the unrighteous judge. It's not what he's saying. He says, and in fact, he makes it clear right here. He says, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God. He totally makes a contrast here. He's saying, here's what an unrighteous do judge does, and he does grant her justice because, you know, because he's wore, wore out over her. What would God do in this situation? He says, God's going to answer your prayer speedily because he cares about you, because he loves you. This judge didn't care about anybody but himself. God cares about everyone. So much so that it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? He loves us, even when we don't love him back. He loves us. Jesus answers, and he says to them, will not God give justice to his elect? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is obvious, and yet it doesn't seem so obvious to us, does it? In our prayers that we're asking for, everybody else is sure, it's obvious, but not my prayer. 
I don't know that I, I, I could say that. And, yet, and then we lose heart because we mistake God's timing as non-action. Who is the elect that he's talking about? Because I know I want to be one. If that's the way that if God, if God's going to do that for the elect, I want to make sure I'm one of them, right? That's how we are. I want to be, I want to be that, whatever that is. I want to be that elect person. Well, if you're in Christ, you are the elect. If you've come to Christ, you are the elect. You're in him. You're his. And he hears your prayers and he responds to your prayers. And it says that he acts speedily. Like he's not waiting forever on the things that you're asking him. But he is lining up his will, and it's according to his timing, not ours. And so if you're in Christ this morning, you are the elect, and he wants you to know that he cares for you and that he hears your cries for vindication, for justice. He hears uh, the things that you're praying about, and he's already at work according to his will and his timing. And he will bring forth justice. Now, many people believe when Jesus is teaching this parable that he's speaking primarily to the persecuted church, and that that makes a lot of sense based on what he's saying here. Because, you know, throughout the Bible, we read these passages. Uh, it, it appears at least 44 times in the Bible where you hear the words, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? Revelation chapter 6. The, the, the um, persecuted saints that died for their faith are underneath the throne crying out to him, How long, O God, before you avenge us? How long will you wait? Don't think that God's not hearing that. If you're in a situation where you're being persecuted, maybe you're in a marriage where the, 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 the other person's not doing their job and they're coming down on you because you're trying to live for Christ, don't think God doesn't hear your prayer. If you're a Christian and you're in the workplace and you're trying to live for Christ and you're being persecuted, you're saying, how long will you have me here? I know that you have me here, but I want to leave, but I'm not going to because I know it's your will. How long will you keep me here? He hears you. Just like he hears all these other people. How long? And it's according to his timing. God is not slack in His promise. He will bring about justice on the earth. He will bring about justice in your life for all those around you that have persecuted. He is going to bring justice. But we just keep praying. We don't give up hope. We keep on praying. The second point, if you're taking notes, Jesus says how not to pray is don't come standing, come bowing. Look at verse 9. He also told this parable. To some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice, twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Notice who Jesus is talking to here. He's, I believe he's switching gears here, and, and it says, to those who trusted in themselves for righteousness. Now, who would that be? It would be his, probably the Pharisees. So he uses the Pharisees in the parable. He, and he tells his disciples, don't be like that. Do not pray like them. Don't come standing to, at, in the throne room acting like you have a right to be there. You don't. It's been granted. 
We ought to come bowing humbly before the Lord because he's allowed us into his place. He's telling them, don't be like the Pharisees. They compare themselves to others and make themselves appear righteous. That's super easy to do, isn't it? I mean, it wouldn't take us long to just walk out this door and somewhere in this, right on this corner, we could find somebody that's worse than us and we could say, man, I'm glad I'm not like that. God, thank you for making me the way I am. You're so lucky to have me. And, and, and we, could, we, can, we can easily do that in our walk with the Lord where we look around at other people and we say, man, I'm not like that. Or, or, or actually the opposite way. Man, you know, that guy right there, you know, he, he does everything right. He doesn't. She doesn't. They're just walking by faith and they're trying to do their best with the Lord. And, and, and Paul did say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Nothing wrong with that. But listen, every human being will, will eventually fail you because we're not perfect people. We follow Jesus Christ. You don't follow, you know, you don't follow, uh, you know, a pastor. You don't follow a, a, a theology. You follow Jesus. He didn't call you to follow another man. He called you to follow him. And that's what we do. We follow Jesus Christ. We don't look around at everyone else to build ourselves up and make us feel like we're so much better. You know, that produces just an elitism. That the, really, honestly, that's kind of what the world looks down on at the church for, right? Because they're just elitists, you know, they're hypocrites. They, they, they don't live the right ways, and yet they act like they're, they're better than everyone else. And, you know, to some degree, that is true, isn't it? Isn't it? When, when somebody in your office tells a crude joke, and, you're just, and you, you, know, you respond in a way that's not really godly, but, but it's for righteousness' sake, you know? You know, you're like, well, I, I just, uh, hey, you know, and you get all... Um, upset and you start yelling at them and you're like wait doesn't the bible say something about anger pretty sure it does but confront the person in love but it's not loving at all but but i'm better than that person jesus says don't be like that ultimately you want to boil it all down remember the fact that you're just a simple tax collector right remember remember that you have no rights before the lord don't forget that you're like the widow the only reason you can, you can come to God at all is because somebody else lived for you. And you put your faith in them. It has nothing to do with you. As Christians, the, you know, we, can, we can well up this idea that we are righteous. In, and we are righteous in Christ. But in and of ourselves, the Bible tells us in Rome, Romans chapter 3, verse 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. No one. No one is perfect. We're hopeless when it comes to righteousness on our own. We need a perfect Savior who can somehow clothe us sinners with His righteousness. And aren't you glad that God did that through His Son? That He sent Jesus Christ. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, you should know this verse. If you don't know it, you should write it down in your Bible. You should memorize this verse. Every time you start to get a little pride in your life, you should come right back to this verse where it says, for our sake, he, being God, made him, Jesus, to be sin for sin who knew no sin because he was perfect, so that in him we, every believer, might become the righteousness of God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. If that doesn't humble you, I don't know what will. Your righteousness is not in you. It's in Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. We become righteous through Christ. And when we become righteous through Christ, the Bible says that our prayers are powerful, right? 
Isn't that what James is talking about in James chapter 5, verse 16, where he says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The prayer of a righteous person avails much. Another version of that scripture. Well, who's righteous? Because you know what we do with the scripture, right? We take the scripture and we say, we look for the person that we think is living the most right, and we say, well, that's the righteous person, and so their prayer is the greatest prayer, and so I want them to pray. For, I hate when people come to me and go, man, you just have a direct line to God. Um, so do you. So do you. I'm not any more righteous than you. We're not looking for someone who's a little less sinful than us so that we can have them pray for us. We are righteous in Christ. We can stand before God because of Christ's righteousness, not our own. And so your prayer is powerful. Listen, and, and here's the thing is, yes, there are things that can hinder your prayers. Husbands, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 6, you better treat your wife right because if you're not treating your wife right, that will hinder your prayers, it says. It will hinder your prayers. Sin hinders your prayers. Asking amiss hinders your prayers. When we're stepping outside and asking for something that's not God's will, that hinders our prayer. But listen, righteousness, that's already been given to you. You are righteous. Your prayers are powerful. When you're asking in the right way, and you know, it's not about faithfulness in this scripture. It's about righteousness. And guess what? Last time I checked, the Bible says, if I'm in Christ, I'm righteous. And so you are righteous. So don't misunderstand the scripture. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin, to pay for our sin, that we could be clothed in his righteousness. Listen, we all stand equal at the foot of the cross, people. We're sinners in need of a Savior. We need God's grace. We beg him for his mercy, and he willingly gives. Jesus is saying, don't come standing like the self-righteous hypocrite. That's how not to pray, and then here's how to pray. Come humbly like the tax collector who couldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast right where his heart was. He's just beating on his heart saying, this is the problem, God. This is my problem. It's in here, my heart. I, I want to do the right things, but I'm being drawn away so easily. God, change my heart. I, I mean, the outward is matching the inward. And yet the, right, the, the self-righteous Pharisee stands there like he's perfect. And God says he's like just a filthy, despicable person. Because he's just clothed in his sin, but on the outside he thinks he's a clean dish. We, we ought to be crying out to God like this tax collector was to be merciful to me, a sinner. I know I have nothing to offer you, God. But I come nevertheless because I need you. That's the reality. We have nothing to offer him except our sin. When I come to the Lord continually by faith and humility and full recognition of who I really am before him, he exalts me, you, us. That's what it means to be humble, by the way. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's really, and people say it's not thinking of yourself at all. It's really, honestly, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking about yourself in the right way, that you're being honest, that you, you know who you are. Come on. You know who you are. You know what God has made you, and so everything should be vertical at that point. You should say, it's because of him. My life and everything that, that I am today is a result of what he's done in me 
And I'm so thankful. And here, I want to share with you what God can do in your life, just like he did in my life, because I was just like you, lest we forget about who we once were. That is humility. And God tells us it's the only way that we can be justified before the Father. That's what Jesus said here. One of the greatest reminders of this whole parable here is the reminder for you and I when we come to that day when we partake of communion and we remember the blood that was spilled for us, the body that was given for us. Every one of us. Not one of us, in every single one of us. That's why Jesus said, do this often. Keep yourself humble. Don't forget that it's the blood and the body of Jesus Christ that has been given for you so that you can become righteous. I want to leave you with a few helpful hints to be effective in your prayer life. First off, when it comes to pray, when, when it comes to prayer, set a time. Because oftentimes we, we say, oh, I, I just need to pray more. We do nothing about it. We don't set a time to pray. We don't, you know, I don't know, we live in a pretty busy world. You do, I do. We need to probably schedule time to pray with God. And whether that's in the morning, at, at your lunch break, you know, sometime you need to set aside. I mean, we, we need to pray always, but there needs to be a time where you set aside where you say, I'm just going to come before the Lord uninterrupted for this amount of time, and I'm going to give myself to him. And it will be hard for you because if you're like me, you're like, I, I got like 100 things to do, and this doesn't feel like I'm being effective right now. If I could just get my hands and my feet moving, I could do something. But do you know that you're being more effective on your knees than you are doing anything else, right? And so schedule some time to pray and be diligent about it. You know, guard that time just as much as you would guard that time with your, your husband, your wife, just like you would guard that Bible time where you would, you would read God's word, where you would guard that time on Sunday mornings where you say, I'm going to carve this out so I can come and worship with my brothers and sisters. Guard some time. Set some time aside for the Lord. Secondly, write down your prayers. Write them down. Because here's what can happen, you know, Joe Blow can come by you and, and he can say, hey, um, will you pray for me? And you're like, oh yeah, I'll pray for you. L let's pray right now. We do that, but, but Jesus is telling us to be relentless in our prayer. And so until we get an answer, we're going to keep praying, right? And so we need to write these things down. You know, you're going to have a prayer list that's like 100,000 feet long, but that's okay. You know, they make apps that you can put on your phone that are prayer apps. Um, there's, I, I, I think Aaron was telling me this app that they made at their work kind of cool it's not out or anything but the idea is that you could even let the person know that you prayed for them how awesome is that hey i prayed for you aren't i righteous no no don't do that but um you know write your prayers down get an app or something and and so that you can remember to pray if you're like me do not do not you know bank on your mind because my mind checks out on me all the time ask my wife thirdly and lastly and most importantly Continue to praise God in your prayer life, always. No matter what is going on in your life, continue to praise Him. Make sure that you enter His courts with praise. When you come and pray before the Lord, and we used to have, I don't know if we have any books back there right now, but I can get some if you're interested, praying through the tabernacle. But we enter through the, 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 um, the, the gates with praise. We come into His courts with praise. We come and we praise Him because He is praiseworthy. Regardless of what's going on in your life and how God is responding to you in your life, He's still praiseworthy.
And so we want to give him praise. And obviously, when we, when we get an answer to prayer, we want to praise him, man. We want to share that with people. God answered my prayer. Let me tell you something. Uh, this whole last week, I was praying, God, will you hold off the rain? Will you just hold off the rain Saturday so that we can get this, this area dug out here so we can get ready for pouring our pad and all this kind of stuff? And, you know, the whole time, the weather did not look like it was going to co- co- cooperate with us. And, uh, you know, so I was praying. I know, I know multiple people were praying about that. And, you know, God answered that prayer. That's not coincidence that it didn't rain yesterday till late in the day, right? I mean, that's not coincidence. Now, what, was it my prayer? No, I think there's lots of prayers going on. But I believe that God heard my prayer. And I believe that God heard your prayer. And so ultimately, praise him for that. I give him praise for that because that was something that, that I was, you know, diligently asking God, persistently asking for and he did it. Listen, pray with praise. Give him praise. So set a time, write them down, and praise him. Amen? Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning. It truly is an honor, God, privilege that we've been given to come into your presence, God, and to be able to communicate with you, to have conversation with the God of the universe. There is no way that I could get the President of the United States on the phone, the Senator, or any of these kind of people, yet I can get the God of the universe in an instant. Father, help us to be not only amazed by that, but help us take advantage of it. Lord, we thank you that you did teach us to pray and that you are teaching us how not to pray. And we ask this morning, Father, that you would help us to develop a more consistent, effective prayer life. Because we know, Jesus, you had an effective prayer life. And you uh, you didn't pray because you had need of prayer. You prayed because ultimately you subjected yourself, being God, but clothing yourself in human flesh, that you might be as dependent on the God of the universe as we are so that you could show us what it looks like to do this right. And so we ask this morning, God, that you would help us to apply those things. We read the Bible and we see that Jesus was up early and he was praying. He stayed up all night praying. How much more do we need to pray? We ask you to do that in our lives, Lord. We thank you. We, we pray this morning, God, for um, just those things that we've, been, we've let go. Maybe we haven't been praying by faith. We ask that you give us the faith to pray, pray again for those things, Lord. You know what they are. And we pray, Father, that you would help us to recognize this morning that the only reason we could come is through Jesus Christ. He is our righteousness. And if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't have a relationship with you, God, you want to extend your hand of grace to them this morning. You want to say, hey, I love you. I want relationship with you. I want to be able to cultivate this, this prayer life with you. But you have to come through Christ. And you would say to that one, if you would just simply confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you would believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'd be saved. The word tells us that we are to turn away from our sin and to turn to Christ, to come to him uh, and say, Lord, I'm, I, I'm, 
I'm emptying my life this morning on your altar. And I'm asking you to come into my heart and make me a believer. Cleanse me of my sin. Forgive me. Change me. I believe in the cross and what Jesus did as he was pinned there for me. As he bled for me and then he died. I also believe that he rose again from the dead for me. So the resurrected Christ can resurrect me. I need you this morning, God. And I ask you to come into my life and transform me. And Father, for the rest of us, Lord, again, we just ask for you to continue to cultivate in our hearts Christ-like character. We thank you, God, for this time now. We ask you to continue to watch over us, bless us, Lord, as we close in this song. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.